Thank you, Brother Hicks. I'm just delighted to see all of you here today. Amen. I really am. I wondered how this would be after this interruption. And uh, I think you all realize that this was a God-led enterprise in its very beginning and has been very beneficial to our preachers especially and to our churches. And so I want to see it go on for that reason. Um, I am getting old and I'm getting forgetful. I want you to pray for me. I have some very important things that God has shown me and that I want to share with you. And uh, so that's why I ask an interest in your prayers. I don't know how this will work out. I'm not very good on timing, but sometimes I have felt during the course of the ministry that it's kind of like the saying that someone comes along and says, I got three minutes, tell me all you know. I can't do that. Neither can any of the rest of us. <clears throat> but we live in a hurry up world and in a world in which one of our great ambitions must be to get people interested to listen to acceptable words. I don't know how to do that. God has shown me a few, a few ways to get people's attention, but all people, all churches, all cultures are somewhat different. So that's quite a challenge. I find, and I believe this before I get the timer started, that Paul taught versatility. He didn't mean to change the message. He meant to change the approach to better reach the people. You better learn, you better learn that. Amen. And ask God to help you to learn that, how to reach them. Now, I'm not saying I'm the best at that by any means, but I do try, and I want you to also. Excuse me for just a moment and we'll get to the lesson. <clears throat> I'm ready. This is the, these are the words of Peter that he made reference to in the third, no, the first chapter of his Second epistle. I believe I'm right on that. I've got them typed out because I have a little trouble seeing uh, that I used to have. So this is where we want to start. And Second uh, Peter, Verses 1 through 16 is where we will start. This is where the scripture text is included. 
Peter was getting ready to depart from this world. He knew his time was close at hand. He had quite a ministry. And there's some things he wanted to remind the church of, the churches, in both of the epistles he wrote, and this one he made it very plain that this was his last, probably his last advice that he would give to them. He started out by saying in uh, verse 16, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. Now let's bring that up to date. That's significant. Amen. Peter was getting ready to talk about a divine direct revelation that made a great difference in his ministry. If you've been saved, you've had at least one divine great revelation. And we're living in a world that increasingly doesn't believe that's possible. We even have some uh, Christian denominations, so-called, that believe that's not possible. And a bunch more that used to be called Baptists that say it's not necessary. I think they're going to find Peter disagreeing with that in these scriptures. We have not followed cunningly devised fables or myths when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, may get to that in a little bit here, but the power and coming, that's very important. We told you about the power and the coming. Peter he had not seen that physically yet, but he had seen something that Jesus had predicted that only three of the disciples got to see. That's the transfiguration of our Lord on the mountain in which the glory that he will have when he returns in power and great glory shone through and not only that, there were two special pe people that appeared in that incident also. One of them had been deceased for what, 1,500 years? And the other one, that was Moses, Elijah, maybe 700. I think, you can just think what you want to, but I think the idea that we won't know who people are when we get to heaven, we just went out the window with that Amen. incident. <laughs> I think I'll know who my brother was, was. I think I'll know who my parents were. I mean, that's, that's one of the great attractive th thoughts of going to heaven, isn't it, for the common man. Let's not get so theological genius that we can't relate to the common man's thinking. This Bible was written for common people. And Peter was a pretty common fellow himself when he started out as one of the apostles. He graduated, he graduated from that mightily when we got to the end of the way. And I don't want to get off on this. I'm going to run out of time anyway, I guess. But 
Jesus came and he, he bypassed the Pharisees and the theologians and he chose fishermen, four of them, tax collector, tent maker, and some other assorted people that were not accepted by the religionist of the day. And they came to know a whole lot more about God and eternity and the Bible and everything else than the people that he bypassed. And by the way, those he bypassed were a large portion of those that demanded his crucifixion. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. <laughs> now I'm a witness of Jesus, but I'm not an eyewitness. Eyewitnesses of his majesty. I love that statement. We know what his majesty means, even in modern times. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He also said, hear ye him. And this voice came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. Now here's the text scripture. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star rises in your hearts. Now what does all that mean? I hope, I hope we'll get to that. That's one of the, my main objectives. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation, but the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of old spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit. So the last two verses, he definitely is referencing the Bible. Anybody disagree with that? But what he was talking about before is six to eight days, and I'm not sure which because it's different according to three of the writers. Before Jesus had made this prophecy, there be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the um, kingdom of God coming in power. So that's what, it's going to be very similar it, it won't just be Moses and Elijah that's with Jesus when he comes back, not transfigured, but what he really is. Amen. No disguise left. It'll be all of the saints. Amen. Some of your dear loved ones, the spirits. The world reads the Bible and they get confused about that. The, the spirits, the disembodied spirits which is the most important part of life to begin with, in spite of what the psychologists say today and psychiatrists. He's going to come back and when he does, they're going to hear his call and the resurrected bodies of every one of those spirits are going to come out of the grave and reunite. Amen. You've never seen anything come close to that even in science fiction. Amen. 
I stumbled for years over this statement. We have a more sure word of prophecy. And I kept asking myself the question, how could the, anything in the Bible be more sure than seeing the transfiguration? That's not what he meant. And I'm confident of this. And since I came to this conclusion, I've found several translations that sort of slant it this way. We are made more sure by such divine revelations as we live our lives, more sure that every prophecy in the scripture is true and will come to pass in its due time. Amen. We can't just depend on the Bible. We need the one that translated it, or rather that dictated it, to translate it for us, don't we? Amen. And that's God, the Holy Spirit. Amen. And I guess I'm emphasizing this today because more and more I find that there are, our nation is filled with educated people. <clears throat> they don't even believe there is a spiritual component to human beings. The most important thing of all. They don't believe they are immortal creatures. They're going to get a shock, just like the rich man did. The, the moment, moments after they die, they're going to realize that their life was a tragic mistake. Because they're going to be in the hands of the, the creator. And most of them in a place that nobody would want to go. I guess maybe all of them, like the rich man. I'll tell you what he found out. I read something the other day that a recommended psychologist was talking about how the brain evolved. I got two words to answer that. It didn't. <laughs> Furthermore, the teaching that all of this stuff that human beings do and think and the way they live is resides in the brain is a tragic error. That rich man had all of his senses intact. He was aware that his brothers were headed for the same place. He was as intelligent as he ever was, maybe more so, while his brain was rotting in the grave. How must the Bible be read? I, I can't leave this alone because this is an important part of this, this, these few verses. You must read the Bible if you're ever going to understand much of it. Peter said, you do well that you take heed as unto a light shining in a dark place. Proud men can't ever understand much about what this book is teaching. That light is God's word. That dark place is my mind and heart. 
And the only way my mind and heart is going to get enlightened is when God does it for me. And he uses his spirit to apply those written things uh, to our understanding. And Peter had a very poetic way of describing this. How long are we to seek? There's been scriptures that it's taken me decades to really understand to where I don't have an uneasiness about it. Okay, you can take a scripture that you that you think this is what it says. A lot of other people do too. You can use that in your messages. But sometimes they're just an uneasiness that there's just something missing. I remember when I was a very young preacher, my wife and I didn't have any children yet. and I was listening to the different ideas that different men had and I would lie there in the quiet darkness sometimes for an hour or two and just wet my pillow with tears. Sometimes Ann would wake up and she'd say, what's wrong? What's wrong? I'd say, nothing's wrong. I have to know. God has called me to be a teacher of his people. I have to know what this means. I might have to wait a while. I'll tell you one thing. If we take that attitude, when we get to where we need to know it, God will let us know what it means. I have to know what this means. And I'll tell you what it can do. And I I didn't mean to get off on this. But my favorite pastor was a post-millennialist. My man that... Baptized me after I got saved as a premillennialist, and and uh, my mentor that God sent me to when I first started preaching was an all-millennialist. And I kept thinking, these are great guys. They can't all be right. <laughs> so one time, and this happens this way a lot of times, I picked up my Bible and. I read the first chapter of Acts and I read where the uh, apostle said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom unto Israel? And he said, it is not for you to know. Now there's no period there, but there was when I read it. It is not for you to know the things that God has put in his own power. But... You shall receive power and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. You're my witnesses. What are you so wrapped up in trying to learn and predict the prophecy? Let me tell you something about prophecy. And I don't mean to get off on that, but Jesus said it more than once. I tell you this before, that when you see it come to pass, you may believe. It's a faith builder. 
It's a pride, in my opinion, and a vanity for people to try too hard to unravel the prophecies. That's not the reason they were given. And he just told you the reason they were given. Now, I'm sure that Peter was strengthened. I, I would say Peter, James, and John, the three that saw the Mount Transfiguration, I would suspect that they didn't know what he was talking about when he said there be some standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom come in in power. Sounds like he meant that till they saw Jesus come back. We well, wasn't even dead yet. But he was talking about this preview <laughs> of what he would look like when he come back and the saints he would bring with him. You think these men could ever doubt the words of Moses after that? I doubt it. I don't think it'd be possible. Now, I've got a lot of commentary here and it's, it's, it's written, so I'm going to leave most of that out. Um, there's something that's very important that Peter seemed to be inspired to prophesy that was way in the future. And it's undermining us terribly today. How often does your preschooler pick up a book and there's this ferocious looking dinosaur that gets their attention. They say, this thing has been extinct for 67 million years. I'd like to know where they how they measured that. That's a guess if there ever was one. And I will relate this to you. I have two articles of, out of Science Journal about 20 years ago, and they sure kept it quiet. Somebody found a Tyrannosaurus leg bone has been thoroughly analyzed at the University of North Carolina, and it has soft tissue in it. Collagen, you can see the microscopic capillaries and blood vessels, red blood vessels in them. <clears throat> it could not possibly have been more than three or 4,000 years ago that that Tyrannosaurus was walking around alive on this planet. You say, well, what happened to them? Well, I don't know that I can answer that for sure, but there's a great climate change. You know, we hear about that every few days now. Unfathomable to the people that are talking about a climate change that took place instantly when all that water came down from above. This got me to thinking, you know, there's something I've read over many times. You know how many times that the scriptures in Genesis refer to the fact that part of the waters of the great deep were placed above the atmosphere in the beginning? Five different phrases. You believe that? I'm going to read them to you. This is the second day. All he created was the atmosphere with water above it, water below it. People today in the 
intelligent people say, well, that's crazy. I don't think so. Let there be a firmament. That word in Hebrew means expanse. In the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. In other words, it's in the atmosphere, the expanse was in the middle of the waters. And God made the firmament. And remember that word means expanse and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. How many times does he has to rub that in before people get it? And yet I read over it for years. Why? Because my scientific knowledge, is tell, tell, knowledge tells me there's no water up there. And that's right. There isn't. But that doesn't mean there wasn't. Amen. And that's what I think, I think, now this is my thinking. I think that's what made people, people and animals live about 12 times longer than they do now. Shut off all the cosmic radiation from outer space. But that's my opinion. I'll not go any farther on that. God made the firmament, divide the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so. That's on the second day. On the third day, he begins by saying that God said, let the waters under the heaven be gathered together in one place. That's where he created the continents and the, and the plant life. This is not very extensive explanation but I believe it answers a whole lot of questions. Now, I'm, this, I'm getting ahead of myself. I've heard this book quoted ever since I was a young preacher. I never thought it would ever be put in print. I had to order this from India. I guess the, uh, maybe the Hindus over there don't have so much opposition to the idea of a creator and a flood. I don't know. But anyway, this man who wrote this in 1887 was definitely not a Bible believer and a believer in a, in a uh, six-day creation. But he conclusively proved with data from all over the world, from some of the biggest scientists, including Darwin and Lyle themselves, that there was a worldwide cataclysmic flood in every part of this earth. And the evidence is overwhelming in the crust of the earth on every continent, except Antarctica, he didn't get there. But I'm gonna tell you this, the biggest uh, irrefutable thing I think that he presented was in the Arctic regions, Something happened as soon as the flood was over. Everything that far north froze solid. And so there are millions of, of animals that don't even exist anymore. Mammoths, hairy rhinos, ostriches, mingled together with tree stumps, marine creatures, um, 
bison, hyenas, animals that are both carnivorous and herbivorous that would never have been together in one company, all buried together in one huge promiscuous grave in the crust of the earth. He absolutely thought he had proved conclusively that there was a worldwide cataclysmic flood. I'm going to take the moment. I may, I may have to let you read some of this for yourselves. You all know who Mark Twain is, don't you? I looked for this quote for probably 30 years. Mark Twain was a brilliant man. He was not a Christian. He was not a biblical believer. But here's what he wrote. In, this is in the 17th chapter of Life on the Mississippi. He talked about how that in, I'm going to summarize this as quickly as I can, that the Mississippi River between Cairo, Illinois, and New Orleans over a period of 176 years was shortened by uh, 242 miles. Where the thing looped like this, they would cut a canal across. And uh, so he said, now if I, and he's talking about extrapolation, and they do this a lot, and the most outrageous extrapolation I've ever read is the Big Bang Theory. How they figured out how quickly, how fast the universe is expanding is completely beyond my comprehension anyway. But I think it was Edwin Hubble by the way, he was born not far from where I was, that he projected that back, extrapolated, I want to use that word, back to a pinpoint. If it's ever expanding, then there must have been a time that was no bigger than the end of your finger. And it exploded. And that explosion is still going on. That's the Big Bang Theory. That's extrapolation at its finest, and there's a lot of what we consider intelligent people that believe that. I think a lot of them have serious doubts about it. But what Mark Twain wrote about the Mississippi is really makes fun of that. In the space of 100 years, well, let's see, let me back up a little. Now, if I wanted to be one of those ponderous scientific people and let on to prove that what had occurred in the remote past by what has occurred in a given time in the recent past, or what will occur in the far future by what has occurred in late years, what an opportunity. Geology never had such a chance, nor such exact data to argue from. Development of species either. Glacial epics are great things, but they are vague, vague. Just please observe. In the space of 176 years, the lower Mississippi has shortened itself 242 miles. That's an average of a trifle over one mile and a third per year. 
Therefore, any calm person, calm person who is not blind or idiotic can see that in the old Oolithic Silurian period, just a million years ago next November, <laughs> I knew that'd get a laugh. The lower Mississippi was upwards to 1,300,000 miles long <laughs> and stuck out over the Gulf of Mexico like a fishing rod. <laughs> and by the same token, any person can see that 742 years from now, the lower Mississippi will be only a mile and three quarters long. And Cairo and New Orleans will have joined their streets together and be plodding along comfortably under one single mayor and a mutual board of aldermen. <laughs> there is something fascinating about science. One gets such a wholesale returns of conjecture, which is a guess, out of such a trifling investment of fact. <laughs> now here's a man who, the late 1800s, could see the foolishness of that kind of stuff being presented as scientific fact. Now, if I have time, and it's in, it's in the written document, we'll get to some time scientific facts that have been discovered in recent years that are quite extraordinary. And I believe them because there's, re there's reason to believe them. There's factual information there. Now, Pardon me a moment while I figure out what I need to leave out here. I've already told you that often these remains that are discovered are jumbled together promiscuously with many of various species who do not cohabit the same spaces in life. Relics of huge extinct land animals are mingled with others yet living, some herbivorous, some carnivorous, Seed-dwelling relics are sometimes mixed in with their remains, and sometimes relics of trees are included. No vehicle but a disastrous, widespread flood is capable of leaving such evidence. The evidence is a great reason why most genuine geological scientists years ago were unable to believe the ages-long uniformitarian falsehood, which Peter long before prophesied first. I think it's amazing that I, I have little doubt, maybe you can change my mind, that what Peter prophesied in the second part of this, and I want to get to that, um, was talking about now. If you have your Bibles of 2 Peter, I'm just going to start at the beginning of it. This second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you in both which I stir up your minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles and the Lord of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days coffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Now that is a good definition of the uniformitarian theory, which is not true. Things do change. There's been three major changes in nature 
The first because of sin, the second because of the flood, all of them because of sin. But the greatest change was because of sin and happened immediately. The second greatest change was the great flood. And the third was the dispersion of the people from Babel. Now, I may not get to those, but you can read it for yourself. For this, they are willingly ignorant that by the word of God, the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. Now, I'm going to touch on this just briefly. I have read numerous translations on this statement that the heavens were of old and the earth, talking about what was before the flood, standing both in the water and out of the water. And to me, what King James says is clearer than any of the others I've found. And that's not always true, but I think it is in this case. Part there, you know, if God put half of the waters of the great deep, that has, the amount hasn't changed above the atmosphere, that means there were much less down here. In a profuse earth with mountains of vegetation and animals, um, that, that is what you would have had. He is saying some of the old world is now underwater. I'm gonna just stop it right there. Some of it is still above water. Some of it is underwater because the sea level is higher. So it's kind of amazing that this old fisherman had that kind of understanding, isn't it? But he talked about something that we're looking at 2,000 years later. They're willingly ignorant of this. Why? Because of what the Word of God says next. The heavens and the earth which are now by the same word kept in store reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition of ungodly men. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing that one day is with, a thousand, is, is with the Lord a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. I'm not going to get into the comment on that. The Lord is not slack concerning the promises some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. Certainly, Peter was not a Calvinist, as was said yesterday, as I recall. But the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise. There's not going to be any secret coming, secret rapture. This proves it. In the same day that he comes with a great noise, the elements shall melt with a fervent heat, and the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up. The first curse brought death. Now, some people don't think that's death to everything, but I do. It brought death to mankind. It brought death to all the animals. It brought death to all the trees. And finally, it will annihilate this planet. All because of our wicked sin. 
that we count so lightly. Seeing that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of persons you ought to be in all holy conversation or behavior and godliness. Looking toward and hastening unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens will be on fire and dissolved, and the elements shall melt with a fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. Now, he really goes on about this. Wherefore, beloved brethren, see that you look for such, seeing you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless. I may think I'll stop right there. Anyway, he repeats twice that this earth is going to be annihilated. Now, I have about uh, a lot more, but I have about five minutes to finish up. One of the greatest problems that have damaged us this day is that there's a world, there's a world of theologians that worship science. Listen, there is scientific fact, but there's a whole lot more scientific theory and a whole lot more scientific hypothesis. The scientists will tell you that. And an awful lot of scientific conjecture, as Mark Twain pointed out, which is a guess. So science is ever changing. Their conclusions are ever changing. One thing they won't talk about is that Tyrannosaurus leg bone has been quiet for about 20 years after those two articles appeared by the Mary Schweitzer in the in, uh, Science Journal. Even she's trying to figure out a way around that. So it appears. They assume something that's not true. And it's edified by these people that say all you have to do is accept Christ as your Savior and you're saved. You have to have an experience with God. Amen. And for a true Christian, a life is full of experiences with God. Um, <clears throat> true born again Christians are like Peter, having been made more sure by the truth of the word of prophecy of the truth in the Bible by its part in bringing each of them to direct experience with God. I have made the statement many times in arguing with skeptics. I don't accept the Bible blindly. The Bible put me in direct touch with God and I have been off and on in fellowship with him for over 60 years. I have, listen folks, and I want to throw this in. You know how long it was before the first words of the Bible were written? 2,700 years approximately. The sons of God before the flood. What is there, were they following? Whether it's uh, Abel, Enoch that was translated, Noah that walked with God and found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Come on down to Abraham. It's very plain that God spoke to those people directly. 
Truth was passed down through the families. That's not near as good as the Bible, in my opinion. That's an improvement. And the greatest improvement, I want to get to this just momentarily, was the dispensation of grace and the bringing of the church. Amen. I'm sorry to have to skip over so much of it, but this brings up a question. It took me a while to see the importance of this. What is a church and what is it supposed to be? What does the Bible tell us about that? It is a called out assembly of regenerated persons, a replica and continuation of the company of disciples, which Jesus gathered during the three and a half years he was here and which was visited with great spiritual outpouring and revival after his ascension, as we find described in the biblical book of Acts, which afterwards became many churches scattered under the uttermost parts of the earth. What should it look like? What should any lo local church look like? How about like Jesus? Amen. He was placed in a manger in the hour of his birth. He was lived an obscure life in the not so reputable Galilee till he was 30 years old. He was persecuted by his own people after he began to preach. And he died on a cruel cross, a falsely accused as a heretic and a criminal. Do any of you want to be like him? There's a good chance, well, our nation is especially blessed, but there's a good chance that you could suffer some of those things and you certainly will suffer something slightly milder than that if you uh, worship the Lord as you ought to. And if you have the kind of church, what should it look like? Like Jesus, I'm not through yet. Like the first one that Jesus gathered with his own hands in the New Testament, which he called a little flock, would inherit his kingdom in Luke 12, 32. Like the last biblical view we have, this, this escaped my thought. There's uh, dozens of lessons that could be taught from the seven churches of Asia. But I never saw this one like I do now. Seven churches were picked out. There were a lot more of them than that. But this was a microcosm of what would exist. Hey, five of those had some serious problems. I'm not going to get off into that. Two of them he had no complaints against. But tell me which one appeared like a megachurch. Tell me which one looked impressive to the world. None of them. What are our churches supposed to look like and who are we trying to imitate? What we need, people, is power from the Almighty God Amen. through the Holy Spirit. Amen. What we need is for people to come in our midst like I saw when I was a youngster and they'd say, I don't know what there is in that place, but I never felt anything like it. Amen. Do we still have that? Yes, occasionally, but we need it all the time. Amen. The church is supposed to look like Jesus, look like the seven churches of Asia. I just love that. That's the last picture we have in the Bible of what happened to the Lord's churches. Big revival is big revival, but the ultimate outcome 
is always trying to plant a church in every locality on this planet. Doesn't matter how big it is. It's how much God is with it. Like the woman clothed in the sun. I found her in history. It says she fled into the wilderness. The high valleys of the, of the Alps were practically uninhabited. That's where, according to their own testimonies, they went. And you know what? When 95% of the Roman Catholics were literate, probably more than that, and were not allowed to have the Bible, these people had it. They are our spiritual ancestors. And after the Great Awakenings in the United States of America a few years later, what did you have? I'll tell you what, the ebb tides of the Great Awakening rolled over my feet when I was a youngster. We were still practicing in our churches and some still are like they did in the Great Awakening. What was that? Brother Tim Binion says it was a revival of experimental knowledge. That's all that needs to be said. Do we still look like that? A few of us do. Dale Compton brought me this information. I've said it before here. I'm going to say it again. I'll be through. Commerce Department counted the churches in this country in 1906. They did it again in 1916, but I'm looking at 1906. When I know that most Baptist churches believe and practice what we do today, would you care to guess how many were in existence? Over 56,000. There were other churches, like the Methodist, the old-time Methodist, that preached this same evangelical, evangelical doctrine and practice, about 65,000 of them. That's not even counting Presbyterians and others that embrace true evangelism. That's what the Great Awakening ultimately produced. A lot of people got saved during it. But Dwight L. Moody and his buddies were trying to imitate revival. And it made a mess out of the churches. Amen. We're not going to have that all the time, but may God send us another one. Amen. But let us realize that the ultimate of that is that the disciples of God would go everywhere evangelizing like they did the great Pentecostal revival. 